Good morning. I am uh, again Peter. I'm our lead pastor here. I get to share with you the word this morning, and I'm excited to journey with you over the next six months uh, through the book of Romans. And so you can go ahead and turn to Romans 1 in your Bible. If you need a Bible, uh, go ahead and just slip your hand up. If you want a, a paperback Bible, it's free for you. You can take it with you. Just slip your hand up. One of our ushers will get those to you. Uh, Romans chapter 1, or if you're in the sanctuary, uh, they're right in, under the seat in front of you. Uh, so over the next six months, we're going to be spending time in this important letter of Romans. And you might wonder, why Romans? Why six months going through it? That seems like a long time. Well, it has uh, had one of the, the greatest impacts on Christian history of any book of the Bible. All scriptures inspired by God. All scripture is equally important and, and, and is profitable for teaching and correction, but Romans has long been considered one of the most comprehensive and thorough books of the Bible. Uh, and in the 300s, uh, St. Augustine was converted by reading just one verse of chapter 13 in the book of Romans. It's had a huge impact on Christian history. Augustine had a huge impact on Christian history, Christian history, even though I don't know which way to say his name. Is it Augustine or Augustine? Still haven't figured that out. Uh, then in the 1500s, Martin Luther, as he read chapter 1, verse 16, and meditated on the phrase, the righteous shall live by faith, uh, he came to a renewed understanding of faith and of justification by faith alone, and he began to lead and spark this movement that ushered in the Protestant Reformation, um, one of the greatest spiritual awakenings our world has had since the days of the apostles. Then in the 1600s in England, a man named John Bunyan was put into prison um, for his faith by a Christian government. That's always confusing. Um, and he was put into prison for his faith, and he, in that prison, re read the book of Romans over and over, and he was so impacted by it that he penned the book Pilgrim's Progress, became the second most read and uh, best-selling book in the history of the world, right next to the Bible. And then the 1700s, John Wesley, as he listened to Martin Luther's introduction to the book of Romans being read in a, a meeting, he found his own heart strangely warmed. He came to a full assurance of salvation, came into a personal relationship with God, and he went on to lead one of the greatest revivals of the 18th century. So it is right for us to spend the next six months studying the book of Romans uh, in comparison, there's a famous English, English preacher named uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. He spent 12 years studying the book of Romans, 366 sermons, right? So we're doing this in like 27. That's lightning fast compared to Martin Lloyd-Jones. 433 verses in Romans. We'll average about 16 a week. And if you've ever read Romans, 16 verses is a lot to bite off and chew every week. So to get started in this book, uh, let me give a little background first. Rome at this time, around 60 or so AD, was the largest city in the world. Around a million people that lived in this city. It was, it was a mix of uh, Gentiles, uh, majority Gentiles or non-Jews, but there were also tens of thousands of Jews that lived in Rome. And pretty much every church that Paul wrote to, every church that he helped start or plant, uh, Romans was not one of them. He'd never visited them before. Um, but <clears throat> pretty much every church that Paul wrote to was a mix of Jews and Gentiles. And that always made things a little complicated. 
There were all the different cultural practices of the Jews according to uh, the Jewish law. Um, there were things like circumcision, things like, uh, hey, don't eat bacon or, or, or shellfish or just different cultural observances of different days and different festivals. And the Gentiles didn't do these things. They didn't have these traditions. And so usually in these church settings, it led to a lot of tension. But in Rome, that tension was made even worse by the fact that um, an emperor named Claudius, about five years, five or 10 years before Romans was written, this emperor named Claudius kicked all of the Jewish people out of Rome, including Jewish Christians. He just kicked them out and they had to go and disperse everywhere throughout the Roman Empire. Aquila and Priscilla are an example of this. They were a couple in the Roman church. And then in Acts 18, 1 and 2, we see that Aquila and Priscilla, when they were kicked out of Rome, they ended up in Corinth. Um, But by the time Romans has been written, we see that they have now returned to Rome. In Romans chapter 16, as Paul kind of gives his last-minute greetings to a bunch of the different people in that church, Aquila and Priscilla are mentioned there as some of his um, most faithful companions in ministry. Um, So Claudius, after about five years, uh, allowed Jewish people to come back to Rome. And so many did, uh, including people like Aquila and Priscilla, many of these Jewish believers returned. And you think about that and think about how that would have affected the relationships in this church. Again, there's already tension. This church made up of Jews and Gentiles. And most of these um, churches would have probably been led primarily by Jewish believers. They would have had more of a background in the scriptures, uh, more knowledge of the scriptures. People like Aquila and Priscilla would have been typically the leaders of these kinds of churches. But when they all are, are all kicked out, now the Gentiles are in charge. Just imagine today if everyone over the age of 20 was kicked out of Waterloo Cedar Falls, kicked out of Iowa, for five years. And everyone who's under the age of 20 runs this church for the next five years. When we would all come back, when us old folks got back, like things would look very different. I'm sure they would crush it for the gospel, but everything would be different. And I'm sure there was the same sense when these Jewish believers come back, hey, who are these Gentiles and what have they done to our church? So Paul's task is to ground them in a big vision of the gospel, a huge picture of the gospel that's going to be big enough to bring them together, to unite them, despite all of this background, despite all of this baggage, despite all of the the different traditions and cultures. So right off the bat, Paul begins to kind of set the stage for us. He introduces himself, and by way of introduction, we're going to look at verses 1 through 17 this morning, and by way of introduction, he goes into three kind of parts. He introduces the man, the message, and the mission. First, the man. Who is Paul? Well, he introduces himself in verse 1, saying, I am Paul, a servant of Christ. Paul, a servant of Christ, writing to you. Now, Paul, interestingly, calls himself a servant. 
Now, that may not seem significant to us, but in those days, to call yourself a servant, that's identifying with someone who's like the lowest of the low. And it's pretty incredible when you think of where Paul came from. In Paul's letter to the Philippians, he writes that he was at the highest of heights of respectability in the Jewish world. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees, he said. The Pharisees were this very uh, devoted group of religious leaders and teachers. He was trained by Gamaliel, one of the greatest scholars, greatest Jewish teachers of his day. He was trained by Gamaliel in Jerusalem. He had all of the the, uh, pedigree and the resume that would go with that. I mean, when you think of his education and his training, this wasn't getting a bachelor's degree. This wasn't getting a master's degree. I mean, he had like PhD level education and training in the Old Testament, in the Jewish scriptures. He probably had most of uh, the Jewish scriptures, the Old Testament, memorized. Like you think you memorized a lot of verses in Awana, right? Like he had like a big chunk of this thing probably memorized as they did in those days. And not only did he have the knowledge and the understanding, but he was committed. He was a zealous, he says. He says, hey, if, in, in Philippians 3, he says, if anyone thinks that they were better at keeping the law than me, I was, I was better. Like it's not a competition, but if it was, I would, I would have won, Right? And he was so zealous that he was devoted to to rooting out this kind of group of Christian upstarts after, uh, in the years after Jesus, he helped hunt down Christians. And we look at that and we're like, ooh, that's rough. That's a bad thing. The way he saw it, like Christians were the enemies of God leading his people astray. And he was willing to do whatever it took, including, you know, killing innocent people if that was needed. And, And isn't that ironic, right? The most of the evil. When you look at history, most of the evil that has been done in the world has been done by self-righteous zealots. And something you hear a lot when people attack religious beliefs, something you hear from kind of militant atheists when they attack religious beliefs, is they list all the terrible things that have been done in the name of religion, and they say, see, look at how bad religion is for the world. And I think the Apostle Paul might agree with that. Paul at one point comes to the place of calling himself, recognizing what he'd done. He ends up calling himself the chief of sinners. And then something happened. Uh, Paul Paul was this Pharisee of Pharisees, uh, a zealot according to the law. But then something happened to him that humbled him. He he calls himself here in the beginning of Romans a servant of Christ. This is the opposite when you think about it of how he would have thought of himself as a Pharisee. As a Pharisee, you know, his zeal in his religion was aimed to elevate himself uh, above people. Now he sees his relationship to Jesus as a means of, of lowering himself and serving others. As a Pharisee, when he encountered people who were sinful and had problems, he'd say, you know, well, you're, you're just getting what you deserve. Uh, if you were just, you know, awesome like me, then you wouldn't have these problems. And, and now he would say, no, you know, I have lots of problems too. Thank God it didn't stop Jesus 
from revealing himself to me. And see, I think Paul would, would honestly say, yeah, there's a lot of bad things that can be done in the name of religion. But if you truly know Christ, then this is how you see yourself. Not as someone who's better than everybody else, not as someone who's this self-righteous zealot, but you see yourself primarily as a servant. And it's the gospel that transformed Paul's way of thinking. I wonder, has that kind of transformation happened in your life? I wonder if there are those here who maybe are more similar to Paul in his early years, a Pharisee of Pharisees, self-righteous, I'm better than everyone else, I've done it better than everyone else. But has a transformation happened in your life where you now see yourselves, as Paul began to see himself, I'm the chief of sinners, I'm a servant of Christ. Paul next says he was called as an apostle. You think if anything would have disqualified Paul from this calling, um, it would have been some of the things he did before he became a Christian. But God showered his grace and forgiveness on Paul. God restored Paul. He gave him this new purpose that involved being an apostle. And he became the preeminent messenger to the Gentiles who would bring them the gospel. But notice the order Paul puts this, puts this in. He's a servant of Christ first, and he's an apostle second. We can never get those two things mixed up. God calls all of us to an incredible purpose, but we're always servants of Christ first. He says, I'm called as an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. That word set apart, interestingly enough, has the same root word in the Greek as the word Pharisee. I think Paul's trying to, trying to get at something here. That before his singular set apart zeal was devoted to displaying his own righteousness, but now he's set apart for the gospel of God. He's devoted to the gospel of God. So that's verse one of Romans, 432 verses to go. Let's keep going. Um, verse two, in verse two, we're gonna begin to see a little bit of a picture painted of the gospel of God. In fact, all of Romans is gonna paint for us this incredible vision of the gospel, but Paul begins to get into it and describe it a little bit to describe the message of the gospel. And when you think about the message of the gospel, this is the message that transforms. This is the message that caused Paul to leave all of this prestige and success that he achieved behind and to go throughout the Gentile world and endure shipwrecks and stonings and mob violence and persecutions. This is the message that still today is central to us as Christians that still motivates Christians to do crazy things, to rearrange their lives around the mission of Jesus, to reach the world by going to far and hard places of the world. Um, this is the gospel that motivates us to rearrange our lives, to introduce our friends or neighbors to Jesus. And uh, maybe you're here today and maybe you've, you were invited by somebody who keeps telling you about Jesus and, and telling you about the gospel. And you're like, why are these Christians so big on this whole gospel thing? Well, Paul begins to get into it. Paul begins to describe it Here's why Paul is so 
passionate. He says the gospel is something that God uh, promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. It's concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was a descendant of David according to the flesh and was appointed to be the powerful son of God according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead. I'm gonna take it chunk by chunk here. It was promised beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Did you know that hundreds and even thousands of years before Jesus came, a lot of the events of Jesus' life were predicted and prophesied down to like very random details, like where he was born, that he'd be born in Bethlehem, that he'd be of the line of King David, that he would die a criminal's death, that he would rise from the dead, that he would save us from our sins, Like every story in the Old Testament, when you read through it, it whispers his name or even shouts his name. There are, actually, if you study it out, there are about 300 uh, plus specific prophecies in the Bible that are fulfilled by Jesus. Now, what are the odds of these prophecies being fulfilled in one person. They've actually done some research, some mathematicians have kind of played around with the numbers and tried to figure out what are the odds of just eight of the specific prophecies about Jesus coming true in one person. So they they got into it and started getting into the numbers and they took the whole population of the earth from the time these prophecies were made until now and they tried to figure out, hey, what are the odds? Eight of the prophecies, we're not gonna do all 300, but just eight coming true in one specific person, and they came to the conclusion that the odds were one in one quintillion. And that's a lot, of, that's like 18 zeros up there, right? One in one quintillion. Now, uh, that's a little hard to visualize. I can't even fathom a number that big. So here's something to help you imagine a number that big. If you were to take a, a coin, a silver dollar coin, about this big, and you were to fill Texas with one quintillion silver dollar coins, it would fill the state of Texas two feet deep. And then if you were to take a man and blindfold him and, 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 and say, hey, I've marked one of those coins and put it somewhere in Texas. And hey, uh, here you go with your blindfold and you can go wander around Texas anywhere you wanna go but you only got one shot to reach down and pick up the right coin. That's one in one quintillion. Those are the odds of just eight of these prophecies being fulfilled in one person. And again, remember, this is a community of of, uh, Jewish and Gentile believers. And Paul is trying to remind them, remember, Your scriptures have been fulfilled in Jesus. Remember, these prophecies have been fulfilled by Jesus. Do you you remember how astounding this truly is? Paul says that Jesus did this in verse three. He did this by being both God and man. Jesus is described as uh, the descendant of David according to the flesh. But then it said that he's appointed the Son of God, according to the Spirit. Now, how does this work? He's the fleshly descendant of David, according to the flesh, fulfilling those prophecies. 
But he's also appointed the son of God. Now, does that word appointed mean that, hey, at some point in Jesus' life, God said, uh, okay, I appoint you the son of God, and Jesus then became the son of God? No. Jesus was always the son of God. That word appointed is, it means um, crowned or recognized or uh, declared the son of God at his resurrection. Jesus, that that conqueror uh, who conquered sin and death, who rose from the dead, he was appointed the son of God. And even now, he sits at the right hand of the Father in heaven. And so this is one of those great uh, mysteries and miracles of our faith, that Jesus is fully man, um, so he could represent us. He's the son of David, according to the flesh, so that he could represent us as a perfect representative of humanity, so that he could die on the cross for our sins as an acceptable substitute, an acceptable sacrifice. But Jesus, at the same time, was fully God, so he could live a perfect life and overcome our sinful nature and flaws. And he had to be fully both. He has to be fully both in order to save us. Verse five, through him, through Jesus and what he's done, we've received grace, Paul says. Through him, we've received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the Gentiles including you who are also called by Jesus Christ. So Paul sees this message of grace as being so important and so central to the gospel. You could say it's a, it's a distinguishing characteristic of the gospel, distinguishing characteristic of Christianity. There's a lot of people out there that say, um, well, pretty much all religions teach the same thing. There's a lot of people that say, well, if you survey all the different religions of the world, they all have kind of the same things that are repeated over and over. It's interesting, there's a, there's a story about uh, C.S. Lewis, the great author and, and philosopher and theologian. He was at Oxford, and there was a, a great uh, kind of gathering of um, all of these different scholars, and they were talking about the, the comparative religions. There was a conference on comparative religions happening at Oxford, and C.S. Lewis is just hanging out, and he kind of happens to stumble into the room as they're uh, talking. Here's them talking, goes into the room, and he says, uh, what's all this rumpus about? You know, classic, classic C.S. Lewis right there, you know. Uh, walks in the room. They have all these uh, words written on a chalkboard. Things about Christianity, like incarnation and the Trinity and resurrection and, and different aspects of Christianity written on the chalkboard. Sin, you know, different, different words. And they're going through and they're saying, okay, let's take this word, incarnation. Where is that found in other religions? And, and one of the scholars would pipe up and say, well, in, in this religion, there's something similar to that. And, and so they'd cross it out. And they'd kind of gone through all the different words and, and crossed them out. And, and, and C.S. Lewis walks up and he's like, what are you guys doing? And they explained it all to them. And, and he said, here's one that you haven't thought about. And he went up to the chalkboard and he wrote the word grace. Grace. And they were uh, spellbound. They, they didn't know how to respond to that. Paul says we've received grace in the gospel. This is what had transformed him. 
And he also says he received apostleship. He received this call, this role of pioneering the gospel and taking it to the Gentiles for the sake of making God's name known among them. And he says his goal, it's kind of an interesting phrase. He says it's to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the Gentiles. This is gonna be kind of a theme in Romans, um, that God's grace grants us not just forgiveness of sin, uh, not only forgiveness of sin, as, as, as unbelievable as that is, but it also grants us a freedom from sin that allows us to live a life of obedience to God. Like many people see the gospel as simply, you know, Jesus dying on the cross so that, you know, I can be forgiven of my sins and go to heaven when I die. Um, but, but the gospel is what grants us full access to God and his grace and his Holy Spirit, his Holy Spirit, that, that transforms us, that grants us forgiveness and transforms our very being. We're gonna see this theme play out very clearly throughout the book of Romans. In fact, the first 11 chapters of Romans are uh, kind of this grand theological explanation of the gospel. And then chapters 12 through 16 are very much about the, the practical outworkings of that in our life, um, about how that works into the way we live in obedience to God. All right, so more to come on that. But uh, there's an incredible transformation that's happened in Paul's life. Paul alludes to this here. He talks about receiving grace. He talks about the call that God's given him. And we're gonna read. We're gonna keep moving quickly here. Uh, verse seven through 16. Let me just read this. Let's look at this together. And again, as I'm reading this, look at how Paul was transformed by this message. Look at how uh, the Roman church was transformed by the gospel. He says, to all who are in Rome, Loved by God, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because the news of your faith is being reported in all the world. God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in telling the good news about his son that I constantly mention you, always asking in my prayers that if it is somehow in God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I want very much to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is to be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. Now, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I often planned to come to you, but was prevented until now, in order that I might have a fruitful ministry among you, just as I've had among the rest of the Gentiles. I am obligated both to Greeks and barbarians, both to, wise, to the wise and the foolish, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. Notice how the gospel transforms. Notice how it transformed these Roman Christians. Their faith is of such a quality that it is being reported of all throughout the world. And Paul says, if I were to come to you, I would be encouraged by your faith. Paul, the great uh, apostle, would be encouraged by them. Yes, he would encourage them, but they would encourage him. Man, what, what a transformative work God had done in their life. 
And then look at the transformation in Paul's life. We've seen uh, Paul the man, who he is, and then the message, why he was passionate. And then we see the mission. We see what Paul's about here in these verses. There's three things Paul says about the mission. First, he says, I'm obligated in verse 14. Then he says in verse 15, I'm eager. And in verse 16, he says, I am not ashamed. He says, I'm obligated. Verse 14, um, he, he feels like he owes them something. He feels obligated in that sense. When we think of owing somebody something, uh, that's usually a negative thing for us. It's like being in debt. And we're like, that's bad. Dave Ramsey would yell at you if you're in debt, right? Like, don't do that. But this is a different kind of owing someone. Uh, imagine this. Um, let's say you work for the food bank. And there was a donor that gave you a million dollars and said, hey, I'm giving you this million dollars and it's to be used for the cause of feeding people in our community. You would take that money and you would feel an awesome responsibility, wouldn't you? You would feel like you owe that person a, a degree of faithfulness and good stewardship with what you've been entrusted. That's the sense of owing. That's the sense of obligation. It's not a bad thing. It's, a, it's an incredible privilege. It's a responsibility that you're entrusted with. This is how Paul feels about the gospel message, that he freely received this uh, grace, this, this priceless treasure, and now he has the awesome responsibility to share it. Is that, is that how you look at the message of the gospel? That you have an incredible responsibility to share it, a sacred, holy obligation. And he says, I'm eager to do this. It's not a joyless obligation. It's not a, a, a dry obligation. He's eager. He's excited to see them and to try to uh, get the gospel to them. Because he knows and he believes and he's seen for himself that it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And he's eager about this. And it's interesting because Paul is about to get into some really deep thinking. Like some of the stuff Paul says just makes your brain hurt. And in the next, you know, 11 chapters or so, um, it's gonna take a little, a little thought and exploration to understand what Paul's after. And it's interesting because there's a lot of people today, I think I hear this a lot, that, you know, people want depth. People want depth. They want deep thinking. They want uh, depth in their sermons. They want uh, deep Bible study. Um, and, and I'm all for depth. Um, I'm all for preaching deep. I'm also all for deep thinking about the Bible. But depth in the gospel, without an eagerness to share it, is a sign of a cold heart and a dead church. Charles Spurgeon, I love this quote, he said, I would rather bring one sinner to Jesus than unpack all the divine mysteries in the word. I'd rather bring one sinner to Jesus than unpack all the divine mysteries in the word. Is that how you would describe yourself? 
Or do you just kind of love the depth and the thinking, but maybe not as eager to share, not as eager to see that worked out into transformation in your life? Third, Paul says, I'm not ashamed. I'm not ashamed. It's interesting that he says that. It's almost as if he understands that there's a temptation to be ashamed of the gospel. And Tim Keller gives four reasons why a lot of Christians today, a lot of modern Christians today, might feel ashamed of the gospel. First, it teaches us that we're spiritual failures and that the only way that we can be saved is through a free gift. And this can offend us. It can offend moral and religious people who think that their decency gives them an advantage over the less moral. Second, it tells us that we are so wicked that only the death of Jesus could save us. And this offends the modern notion of the innate goodness of humanity. Third, it teaches us that all so-called good, sincere people will not automatically make it to heaven. And this offends the modern notion that any nice person anywhere can find God in his own way. It says that God has provided only one way of salvation. And if you're going to receive it, you have to do it his way. And lastly, the gospel tells us that our salvation was accomplished by Jesus' servant uh, attitude, his servant heart, his suffering, and that we should expect the same in this world as we follow him. And this offends people who want salvation to lead them into this easy, nice, kind of comfortable life. And Paul says, hey, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. He recognizes that there might be a temptation to be ashamed of the gospel in his day and in ours. But for us, to not be ashamed of the gospel, we need to understand what it means for our lives, what it means to believe the gospel, that yes, it can offend us, it can offend others, but we embrace it anyway because we know full well it is the power of God for salvation. It's the only thing that can save us. Think about it, if you're drowning and someone throws you a rope, you're not gonna get offended if that person's like rude to you about it. If they yell at you, like, grab the rope, stop yelling at me. You know, you're not gonna be offended. You're not gonna be offended by the color of the rope. I don't like that color. You're not gonna be offended if the rope is a little little rough on your hands as you grab it. And we get hung up on parts of the gospel that offend our kind of modern sensibilities. But here's what's funny is that we should be concerned less about whether we're offended by the gospel and we should be concerned more about whether God is offended by our sin and rebellion against him. Because the gospel is about uh, a way that God has provided for us to become unoffensive to him. And Paul says as much in verse 17. He says, in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. In the gospel, we can become righteous, clean, pure, unoffensive to God through faith in Jesus and what he did for us. So here's here's a question to reflect on this morning and as we launch into the book of Romans. 
Do you feel the same way that Paul felt about the gospel? Do you have a holy sense of obligation with it? Are you eager to share it? Are you unashamed of it? And maybe you say, yes, praise God. But if that's not true of you, then what? Well, you need the book of Romans. You need, you need a better handle on the gospel. And the book of Romans is all about the truth of the gospel. And you might think, six months on the gospel? I know the gospel. I don't need that. Give me something practical I can use. Like, give me something about anxiety or, or parenting or something. But listen, Romans isn't just about what the gospel is. It's about the profound impact and effect it has in our lives. The gospel is simple, but there's depth upon depth that Romans explores. And at the end of the first 11 chapters of Romans, the most kind of theologically deep and robust part of the book, Paul ends it with this. He says, oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and untraceable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? And who has ever given to God that he should be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever, amen. And my prayer for us is that by the end of our time studying this book, that, that it would result in rejoicing in the greatness and majesty of God. A deeper understanding of the gospel inevitably leads to a deeper awe of God and a deeper gratitude for his love and greatness. And let me tell you, that will impact every practical area of your life. From mental health to finances to marriage to parenting, what we need in this season is a deep and awe-inspiring picture of the gospel. It's interesting, thinking back to C.S. Lewis and that story from earlier, he was so uh, centered on the picture of grace in the Bible and in Christianity. And C.S. Lewis, at one point, reflecting back on his life, he said, I'd been a Christian for many years before I really believed in the forgiveness of sins. I've been a Christian for many years before I really believed in the gospel, or more strictly, he says, before my theoretical belief became a reality to me. Before my theoretical belief became a reality for me. And I, my prayer over the next six months is that some of the things that maybe many of us have believed in theory, maybe things we could rattle off because we learned it in Sunday school, that those things would become a reality to us. And I think of myself, when I was 16 years old, grew up here, grew up in a, a wonderful Christian home, and I, I could rattle off truths about God and scriptures and what is the gospel and all of those things. I think it wasn't until I was 16 years old that it became a reality for my life. I can identify with C.S. Lewis like I really believed it. And maybe for you, you're, you're here and you're thinking, yeah, God forgives sins, but do you understand that, that God offers forgiveness for your sins? 
God offers a way for, for you to come to him. Yes, no matter how unworthy you feel right now, no matter, no matter what your past looks like, maybe it's similar to the Apostle Paul and it's, it's things that you wouldn't even wanna publicly admit to. Whatever it is in your life that, that might be keeping you from putting your trust in Jesus, let me just tell you, the cross, the blood of Christ, the sacrifice of Jesus is big enough. You can believe in what Jesus did for you and you can put your trust in him and you can know that, that Jesus paid the price for you, that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. If you're here today and you wanna put your faith and trust in Jesus, maybe for the first time or maybe you're rededicating your life to Christ this morning, I wanna ask you to pray with me, to pray along with me, um, just quietly in your heart, and there's nothing magical about these words. What matters is that you um, believe them and that you sincerely uh, agree in your heart. And that that agreement in the heart is uh, resulting in a trust from your heart and from your life in him. And yes, it involves a surrender to him. And yes, it involves an acknowledgement of sin. Well, let me lead you in that prayer this morning. God, I, um, I come to you and I acknowledge my sin, my need for the gospel. I acknowledge that, God, you have done what only you can do, sending Jesus, fully God, fully man, into this world to die on the cross for my sins, to make a way for me to come into relationship with you, to be forgiven. And I thank you this morning for that forgiveness. I thank you that you can make me clean. I thank you that you can restore me and that I can receive your grace. God, I receive that by faith in Jesus right now. And if you're here today and you prayed that this morning, just as everyone's heads are bowed and eyes are closed, I'd just love for you to slip your hand up and just acknowledge before me and before the Lord you prayed that prayer this morning to put your faith and trust in Jesus. God, we just thank you for your grace, for your abundant grace, especially for these few that have raised their hand today and just acknowledge before you that I'm trusting in you, Jesus. God, we just thank you that you are the way, you are the truth, and you are the life, and, and that uh, you've granted us power for salvation. Um, God, we have an incredible hope and an incredible future in you, and it's through your grace. We love you, and we pray all this in Jesus' name.